日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives Podcast. This is Chris here with Travis, Nate, and Joseph. Hello. Welcome. You. And today we're going to talk, we're going to delve into the wonderful world of finance with Joseph, who's going to take us on a journey through the history of currency in ancient Japan. So today we'll be discussing、uh, currency in ancient Japan. So, today we're going to take a look at early currency, mostly before the Heian period,、um, approaching the issue of when were、uh, coins first used in Japan, first、uh, found in Japan, what, you know, what, is, what is currency?、Uh, does it have to be a coin to be currency? We'll be touching on a few of these issues today, mostly focusing on the Yayoi、uh, period. And、um, the reason for that is. You know, the Yayoi and the Kofun periods are, are very vibrant and they don't get a lot of, of press. And also because everything after that is just totally boring and stupid. Well, yeah, I, I, I hold by that. <laughs> so let's first discuss the, current politi- you know, the contemporary political situation in Japan.、Um, and this is during the Yayoi period. When, when coins are first found in Japan. So in the closing centuries of, of,、um, of the BC era, So, before the current era, around the、um, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st centuries, Japan is divided into numerous communities. And in the, fir- in the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, we see the first, basically, the first formation of small polities that are larger than, for example, a river valley community. We see the first examples of stratified burials, really.、Um, and we're not talking at this point of just a One single you know, glorified burial out of a, a community burial, but we're talking about a multi layered system where you'll have, for example, in the middle of the first century BC, Mikumo Minami Shoji, tomb one, and、uh, Suguoka Moto Di、uh, tomb. These are believed to be、uh, the tombs of the Ito king and the Na king, respectively. Now, these,、oh. so middle of the First century BC. They have up to 30 mirrors in each.、Uh, these are、uh, former Han mirrors and they're very large. And、uh, beyond, besides that, they have bronze weapons, which by this point have become、uh, ritual items. The bronze weapons are mostly found at this kingly level. Be- when, you, when you go lower down the, the social spectrum, you begin to get to uh, utilitarian uh, iron. So, by, by the first century BC, this, this dichotomy between utilitarian iron for warfare and、uh, bronze that's no longer sh-、um, polished to make it sharp, or no longer, for example, socketed spearheads no longer have, the sockets no longer hollow, so it doesn't serve a purpose, or they become larger and larger, heavier, you know, and they become wider and wider, and they just, the only thing that they're good for is the only reason that they stay around is because a great Value was placed on them for their ritual efficacy. So, first century BC, we already see a dichotomy between bronze and steel here. Now, 
So you have the Ito and the Na polities in northern Kyushu, and they had diplomatic relations with the former Han. We know that because of the goods that they received. Now, you let's say you go down another another level within this stratified social system, and you 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 uh, no longer have large uh, former Han mirrors, but you have mid to small mirrors, and you have much less of them. So instead of having thirty in a single burial, you will have um, two to six. Go down again, and you have maybe perhaps one small mirror, but then you start having lots of iron, iron weapons. So, and you know these there is a little bit of overlap here and there, but there is a pretty fixed system of a person of this rank, of this level, of, of this, of this um, within this socially complex, or at least moving towards social complex social system. You have a division of burial goods that are appropriate to each rank. But if they're retroactively looking at these and saying, well, because this stuff is found here and it's less valuable than this, that means this person must be below this rank? Is that how they were, is they retroactively well, decided that these are the different ranks based on what they find not, in the grave goods? Or? It's not simply just based on the grave goods itself, but it's also based upon the, uh, the following two factors as well. Number one, uh, whether they're in a communal cemetery or whether they are in a single burial that's that's segregated, hmm. and the Na and Ito polity kings are they are in segregated burials just for them, while the um, lower groups that I mentioned that no longer have the large mirrors but they have small mid to smaller mirrors and iron, um, they are in a communal burial. So it's you you begin to see a basically a pyramid forming. Hmm. So the lower level, um, you know, whatever they would be, the lower level. Um, officials and whatnot, they are within the communal burial, but they have a higher, more valuable set of grave goods than others around them mm -hmm. who would have um, perhaps just iron, no mirrors, or perhaps nothing at all. Uh, in addition to that, we see, um, we see a system of exchange within this pyramid. For example, there is a um, site, I believe, at Tateiwa, the Tomb 10, I believe, if I remember correctly, that um, was a second tier chieftain basically, and he received a uh, burial pot basically. At this time, they were called kamekambu, and the kamekan is this type of burial jar, and uh, that was from the Na polity, which was uh, one of the, the main chieftains of the time. Everyone else within that communal burial had local style pottery, they were buried in, buried in local style pottery mm -hmm. tombs. So the chieftain amongst this, this group received a special burial pot from a chieftain up the line. So we're beginning to see a um, interaction. vertical stratification interactions. Um, in addition to this, Ito, the polity Ito, at this time Na and Ito were at the, at the, the head of this pyramid, 1st century BC, 1st uh, century AD. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, um, the former Han would have um, these glass discs that were burial goods and uh, we see those in the, the, the kingly burials of this time. Those at Ito were reworked into smaller like pendants and smaller items, and those are then passed down. And, and we don't see the items that we find in the higher levels burials within the lower level burials. So we see some sort of system of control that they have here. So it's, uh, it's often said because the, um, a, a record of the former Han, which describes 1st century, 2nd century and 1st century BC, China, Korea, and Japan. 
it, it says that at this time Japan was divided into 100 communities, 100 guo, 100 kuni, and uh, it's often said that at this time it was very politically fragmented. Well, within North Kyushu, we have a stratified system of social um, complexity. We right. and, and so it's, um, and that's only now, and then that, this is common in Japanese, the Japanese literature, but this has not been discussed very heavily in English. Uh, Gina Barnes' recent, I think 2004, her book on state formation, I believe she, she mentions that, um, which is an excellent book. Gina Barnes' State Formation in Japan, I believe it's called The Emergence of a Fourth Century Ruling Elite or something along those lines. Now, so at this time, um, we're, we see within North Kyushu this politically complexifying, if I may use that word, uh, social integrated system, socially integrated system. Now, when you move further east during this time period, first century BC, right? you see less and less former Han goods, and you see more and more local or... or um, native. Hmm. Right, native or things from the Korean Peninsula, the, the southern extremity of the Korean Peninsula. Hmm. Now, you move into, you look at, for but having said that, you look at the Ikegami Sone um, site in Osaka, or the Karakokagi site in uh, Nara, which uh, contemporary buildings they have there, uh, first century BC. And we know this from the, the post holes, and also shards of pottery with drawings on them. We see the presence of Chinese-style architecture, at least in this region in the first century BC, that suggests that while um, goods, and we, there are former Han goods at this time that reach as far as Kansai, um, central Japan, but it's, they all pass through the hands, it, it's believed, of Kyushu, and they're going to take the lion's share and the rest will trickle through. Mm. But we do at this time, we do see some remnants of, of you know, we see a shadow of China, basically. It's interesting how, you know, scholars fixate on certain phrases and, and you know, they look at the, uh, that in the record and, and assume that it means that it's fragmented and that each of these mm -hmm. polities are, you know, in competition with each right. other. Where, Whereas, you know, you could say the same about Edo period, mm. Japan, where, you know... Very good point. I mean, it's, it, they're all, you know, however many countries, mm -hmm. uh, because the term kuni right. is used, the same term. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't an overarching right. governmental... They were very interconnected, nevertheless. Um, you know, however the system ended up work, working out or, right. or, or was, but... I mean, it's interesting just how, you know, you have to go back and rework interpretations like that. Well, and that, that speaks to the importance of a, a of cooperation between history and archaeology. And, and, you know, this, this, this document I mentioned that talks about first century BC Japan uh, from the former Han, it does mention that, you know, several of these hundred countries or communities or polities or whatever English term we'd like to use, um, were in contact and, tr and basically gave tribute to the Han. So there was competition, but nevertheless, we do see amongst this competition um, haves and have-nots. We see this pyramid forming that we can, we can trace through the material culture and the bearer of goods. Right. So that's what we see at this time period. This is the closing decades of the middle Yayoi period. Okay. The Yayoi period is broken into early, middle, and late, and there are subdivisions within that. So basically, First century BC is when we see the first really sense of this, a political integration that's above the single community level and it's stratified. Of course, this is within uh, North Kyushu. I'd like to stress that. It's not until 
um, we enter the first and second centuries AD that we see the influx of iron, which was at that time mostly in Kyushu, influx into um, Middle and Eastern Japan. And that really changed that distribution system that changed from uh, stone to iron. That really changed the interaction between polities. And that helped lead to then the, the delayed political integration of that region. So with that being said, with that being said, let's look at some of the coins that we find in Japan because we see a lot of trade and interaction between China, polities on the Korean Peninsula, and uh, the Japanese archipelago. Now, so to begin, we have the, in Japanese, the Handyosen, which in Chinese is the Banliang. And I'm, I'd like to say up front that I don't speak Chinese. <laughs> and so um, please forgive any butchering that I may do. Now, this name refers to the weight of the coin. And it was minted by the state of Qin uh, from the latter 4th century BC. So it, it, it weighed half a liang. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, this was minted by the state of Qin from the, the latter 4th century BC. Uh, it was further promoted by the um, Qin Shi Huang Di, who was the first, um, I believe, the first emperor of Qin. Mm. And um, it was in wide circulation until the um, Goshusen, or the Wuzhu, was minted by the uh, former Han in 119 or 118 BC. So this is before, you know, the, these, these Han Ryosen or Ban Liang were minted before the, the period of political integration I was talking about, but this doesn't mean that goods weren't being traded in and out by local communities. Right. Um, were these coins used in Japan as currency? We will get there. Oh. Now it was it was um, minted until BC 119 or 118, um, and and then it was replaced by the Wuzhu or the Goshusen. But private minting did continue beyond this point, which makes it very difficult for archaeologists to let's say you have a Han Yosen or a Ban Liang appear in a tomb, um, mm. and you know it's the official minting lasts from later fourth century BC to the late second uh, century BC. But nevertheless, private minting continues after that. Right. What in what capacity were these these coins brought over? That's a question that can only be helped answered with relative dating. For example, let's say you have a a burial tomb, or at this point you would have a, basically a pot burial. In and around there you have pottery that dates to period X. Well, you with a you know good certainty you can say well this dates to this you know, period X burial, so, but this nevertheless doesn't tell you when, unless there's an inscription on the coin, when the coin was minted, it only tells you when it was buried. So that's, right. you know, there we have kind of a big, um, a big margin that we have to work with. So, um, sites that, in Japan, where we find these Handyosen, congregate on the western extremity of the archipelago, so Kyushu and Yamaguchi, which is the farthest west of, of Honshu. So the, the tip that, almost, that, that forms the Shimonoseki Straits with Kyushu. Exactly. So we, the sites that congregate in this area are still within the North Kyushu area that I've been mentioning. So this is the first region to achieve political integration. Most likely, these, um, the sites that, that we find these uh, coins in date to the 2nd century BC. So we're slowly seeing you know, river valley delta level polities or communities, and then you see two and three, and then you have larger valleys, and slowly integration, right? 
during the early, basically, the groanings of this political integration, we find these coins uh, in, in, in tombs and elsewhere. And I mentioned that the Han Duo Sen, or the Ban Liang, was, was in wide circulation until the Wu Zhu, or the Goshu Sen, uh, which was minted by the former Han in BC 119 or 118, and that was by Emperor Wu, first minted by Emperor Wu um, in Japanese Bute, and that was in BC, he reigned from BC 141 to BC 87. And the Goshu Sen were also in, wide cir uh, you know, in circulation for an extended period of time, um, despite a break during the the Xin, uh, in Japanese Xin, in Chinese, you know, I won't even, I won't take a stab at it, but nevertheless it's Romanized as X-I-N. Yeah, Xin, yeah. something like Xin. Yeah. And, um, and that was by Wang Meng, that was the, the interim by Wang, Wang Meng between, or in Japanese Omo, between the former and the latter Han, there was a, a small interim in between there. And despite a break in the inter, in that, during that interim of minting, uh, the Goshu Sen actually continues through the Sui. And Goshu Sen is found uh, in in these early um, sites as well. Another coin that I'd like to discuss is the Huo Kuang or uh, Kasen, and the Kasen was printed during this interim by Wang Meng uh, from AD 14 through 40. Now it's it's I guess um, its official minting a minting apparently only lasted about 20 years, which makes it very useful as a a relative dating tool, mm -hmm. which lets us know, because it often appears with early, early late yayoi pottery. Mm -hmm. So this is the late yayoi, which begins, you know, around basically the first cent, the early first century AD, and it appears with this early late yayoi pottery. Right. And so that helps us date then. So when did, you know, early? When did the late yayoi period start? So this this is a very important coin, but its its official minting only lasted about twenty years. Um, but it did continue a little bit after Wang Meng died, so AD 14 to 40 is the margin we have to deal with. Um, its minting was stopped by Emperor Guangwu, who ruled from uh, AD 25 to 57 in Japanese Kobute. And so the, the three coins I mentioned until now were all printed, or all minted, I should say, um, basically roughly 30 AD and before but we nevertheless see them scattered in, in relatively contemporary sites. So printed and, and within you know, a reasonable time period they were entering the archipelago. And Guang, Guang Wu was the same emperor who gave the, um, the, imperial, the golden imperial seal to, um, to, to Na, right? The, the, the polity of Na in 57 AD. 57 AD so. And that, um, that is um, you know, you know, landmark as far as the, that investiture and the inclusion in the, the Sakuho system, the Chinese investiture system, um, is an extremely important watershed in Japanese political integration, or I should say, Wa political integration. Yeah. And, and, and connections with the mainland, and indications of connections with the mainland. And you know, this gold seal, um, this, this seal is basically a stamp, and it says, you know, Na of, of the Wa, of Han, which basically means Na polity of the Wa region, uh, friendly to, to Han. And so it, they've been included as an outer vassal, basically, within this investiture system. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's very small. It's only, I believe, like 2.3 centimeters per side, I want to say. Mm. It's extremely small. I don't have it written down here, actually. Nevertheless, it was found on Shikanoshima in Kyushu. It was just you know, this, this small, tiny seal was discovered in, I believe, the 18th century yeah. by a, a farmer. 
and so a fantastic find. So moving, um, stepping back one, um, there's also the Meitou-sen, which was, um, which we find in Okinawa actually. That was printed um, before the third century BC, but that finds its way into Okinawa. That was from the Yan or the En uh, state during, I believe, the Warring States. And we find that in Okinawa. And if you want to speak to Okinawa's international relations a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, Okinawa wasn't really, the peoples of Okinawa, the peoples of the different Ryukyu Islands were not really integrated into any, into any sort of notable state mm -hmm. until pretty late, until maybe the 11th or 12th century AD. CD. Which is about the time when we started seeing rice, agri actually, agriculture in Okinawa as well, very late. Yeah, yeah, very late. So, um, and um, uh, Okinawa wasn't in any kind of, there wasn't really a state in Okinawa to have formal relations with China until 1372. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure exactly what was going on in uh, the third century BC, but, uh, but suffice to say that, mm -hmm. yeah, the the people of, of, the, of the very few Q islands have been um, in contact, apparently, um, with China for a very long time, and, and, and with Japan as well. And exactly. We find magatama, um, which are sort of these like kama-shaped beads, mm -hmm. and if you write all kinds of different um, pottery and seashells, right? right? Okinawan seashells found in Kyushu, all kinds of exchange going on at this time. We used to see... Um so in, in official and unofficial capacities, Okinawa was very international, or the region that we now know as, as Okinawa. Right. Um, for example, 8th and ninth centuries, um, this region was providing, I believe, mother of pearl to the to right. Heian court. Right. And in addition to this, during the um, you know, late Jomon in the Yayoi, we're seeing um, Okinawa, this region that we now know as Okinawa, bra shell bracelets from that region right. are found in tombs throughout not only Kyushu but also the main island of Japan right. um, and within, especially very heavily in the Kofun period. Mm -hmm. uh, sp you know, speaking to the, ex you know, the, the long distance trade of this region, we also find these shell bracelets and shells all the way up in Hokkaido, the, the northest, right. northernmost island of, of the Japanese archipelago. Which so indicates just an incredible amount of trade yeah. and exchange. Which, yeah. for these, these luxury items that they're not necessary to daily life, they speak to you know, the affluence or they speak to the importance of the person um, receiving them. Uh, this trade system, there was, there was great distances traveled. I just mentioned between Okinawa and Hokkaido, but in addition to that, um, Hisui or Jasper, or green, you know, Jasper or like green tuff, is found only in um, an area around Niigata Prefecture basically the Tohoku region of Japan. Okay. And it's only found there, but we see this network of, of Jasper that, that derives from that region. You look at a map that, like, let's say you have uh, lines between the, the, the source and sites that, that, that's been found at, and you have these, these lines of travelers going across the main island. Hmm. And uh, in addition to that, obsidian, um, long-distance obsidian trade as far back as Jomon and even a Pleistocene. So, and in addition, this, you see lots of um, Korean Peninsula um, pottery mm. in Kyushu, in, in um, Osaka, in Nara, in Kyoto. Uh, you, and in this, you see Kyushu Yayoi pottery in, this, in the uh, southern extremity of the Korean Peninsula. At the, during this time, we have a huge network of trade, uh, official and unofficial. 
And so it's important not to get fixated on this is China, this is Korea, this is Japan. Well, no, this was a certain state in China or a kingdom in the, the region we now know is China with flexible borders when, when re, you know, regimes fall and rise. The Korean Peninsula is, you know, you have the proto-three kingdoms, then you have the three kingdoms, and they're invading each other, they're coming into the Japanese archipelago, Japanese people are going there. Mm. Um, and within Japan, in Japan and, as well. and, and especially Okinawa, there's really no centralized, uh, I mean, it's, it's all just sort of scattered uh, communities, right? Right, and so the, let's keep that in mind. So you can't really call it Japan or, you know, right. right. It's the wall. Right. Um, the various many different peoples of Wa. Just another bird in the wall. All in all. That should be the name of the podcast for today. So the Meitosen from the En or the Yan we find in Okinawa. Um, there are like the Huobu is like, they, in English they call it the money spade or there's knife money. Um, oh, I've heard of that. The knife money is the Meitosen. The, the spade money is Huobu. And we find that in two sites in, in the Japanese archipelago. Um, there are two, Dachuan uh, Wuxi, forgive the pronunciation there, um, they derive from the Wangmeng interim between AD 9 and 14. So um, very good for helping us relative, with relative dating of sites in the archipelago. So up until, you know, basically 50, you know, four, you know 40 uh, AD, we see a, a great number of coins in and out, um, numbering, you know, over, uh, over 100, over 150. Great, you know. So what, what were these used for? Um, there weren't enough of them to sustain a domestic economy. Um, we find By domestic, you mean within, within the, the Japanese Archipelago. Okay. There was not enough of them to sustain a domestic, as an uh, archipelago, economy. Um, we also find them congregated, uh, for example, like as much as 90 Goshusen in one tomb, in one burial. That's, mm. And so it, this speaks more to um, their role as prestige goods. Um, another uh, option is merchants dealing with uh, peninsula, Korean Peninsula or China, dealing with those areas. Perhaps it was something that within merchant spheres was something that was... Um, that they felt that they needed in order to buy things or, or exactly. vice versa, they obtained it. Exactly. Right. Or, I mean, it could have been tribute goods. Very well, yeah. Right? And so, uh, we don't know for sure, but, but these are some of the viable options. Now, so at this time, um, go ahead. Sorry. So I was just going to say because um, in later periods, I mean, once we get into sort of the Nara and Heian periods, mm -hmm. one of the main sources of Chinese coins for Japan, one of the main sources of Chinese coins coming into Japan was um, uh, uh, merchants or, 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 or tribute, particularly like in the Ashikaga period. Right. We have actual Japanese tribute missions to China and they would sell goods in China and obtain Chinese coins. Right. And they would have the, and they would have these Chinese coins that they would bring back. So I feel like that was probably a pretty good... Chinese coins were a huge part of the, the medieval Japanese economy. Oh, yeah, um, we find, we find millions of these coins. Yeah. In, um, and um, it was common for daimyo to bury large reserves of coins on their yashiki, their residences, and we find those even today. I think like 15,000 were found at one location just, just recently, yeah. and this is not an isolated incident. What, what was the purpose of burying them? 
Um, basically, it's up to you. Put a big X on it. And your personal bank, basically. Let's say that you know there's there's political tension, there's war going on. Let's say you need money and you're in a bind, or you need money and you are cut off, or your trade routes are cut off, or you know whatever it is. Your personal reserve of money is buried on your land, and we find this um, over and over again. So millions, basically, you know, millions of, Ch of Chinese coins. How's the condition of these coins? Are they perfectly legible, or do they get sort of worn out with age, or how does it? Uh Across the spectrum, um, some coins don't have an inscription. Some, and those that do, perhaps, and usually there's you know two to four Chinese characters on there. Sometimes one will be in you know completely illegible, but you but based on um, precedents in China or based on the time period, you, it's easy to pinpoint what uh, what they are most of the time. So we've covered um, coins in the Ar Japanese archipelago until f the middle of the first century AD. Mm. So it's it's commonly believed that the um, Wado Kaijin was the first, you know, the first Japanese coins. They say, right. and we'll and we'll we'll discuss whether that's um, true or not. But even before this time, you know, you, okay, Wado Kaijin, first Japanese coin. We don't need to look earlier. But it, there's a very vibrant international trade system that involves Chinese coins of Chinese origin sure. hundreds and hundreds of years before, even a thousand years before the, the, the late Nara early Heian period when the Wado Kaichin first appears and that is often neglected so that's why I wanted to talk about it today. So next I'd like to before and we're going to skip the Kofun period um, just for time's sake <laughs> and we're going to enter the late Nara, no, I'm sorry, the late Asuka, early Nara period. Right. So, beginning with a discussion of, of coinage. So, what is the difference between commodity money versus fiat money? This is, this is very important. Commodity money refers to money that, the, that is, has an intrinsic value. So, for example... Like um, gold. Oh, exactly. The, the, the coin has as much value, you know, that piece is... The, the value of the, the words are metal is, is the, the value of the coin is based on the actual... The actual weight of the item. It's the actual actually weight what it's made out of. Yeah. Exactly. Right. As opposed to face value money. Right. And the face value money or fiat money is, is, for example, paper money or shells or anything that has been given a value, perhaps by the government or whatever ruling body, that is not equivalent to the intrinsic value of that item. Mm. So the difference between commodity money and fiat money, and as we go on, this will this will come up. So, before um, the Fuhonsen, Fuhonsen, Fuhonsen was, I felt like a Japanese learning tape. <laughs> okay. Fuhonsen. Now say it with me. Before the discovery of a um, a coin called the Fuhonsen, the Fuhonsen in 1999. It was long said that the oldest coin, uh, the oldest Japanese domestic coin, was the Wado Kaichin. Before we go to the Wado Kaichin, we're just going to talk about this Fuhonsen, which hasn't gotten a lot of, a lot of uh, press. The Fuhonsen was based on the Chinese tongue Kaigen Suho, and it was it was the Fuhonsen was based on that Chinese coin, but produced domestically, and we we have found basically minting implements. For example, um, there's basically like a tree with uh, coins at each branch. So there's like a items. What was that? Uh, 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 it's a money tree. Yes, a money tree. Yes. 
<laughs> a real money tree. It's the actual term. Money in this in Japan did grow in trees. <laughs> and we find this at a site in Nara Prefecture called Askamura at the Askaike site. Now, let's we're gonna turn to the Nihon Shoki now. In 683, Emperor Temmu, in the 12th year of his reign, 15th day of the fourth month, he says, from now on, use uh, copper. Use bronze or, or copper coins. You shall, you shall use, you shalt, thou shalt use these. And you will no longer use silver. So, in 683, he talks about using copper and says no more silver. What is this silver referring to? Well, the silver precedent um, we will get to, and it's called the Mumon Ginsen, meaning um, silver coin without a design. So an undecorated or unlabeled silver coin. So Mumon Ginsen. So a problem though with this Fuhonsen is that it's, it's um, it, you know, the nature of its identity is often called into question. There are enough of them found that it's not believed to be a, a purely ritual item. For example, some, and these, these coins that are used to ward off evil or to protect, give you good luck, are called Enshosen. And um, it's not believed that it is not believed that the Fuhonsen were, were these um, ritual items um, that had a you know, a, a magical value to them because of the amount that were in circulation. However, they were not in circulation for an extended period of time. So let's look at, let's look at why this was. Returning to the 683 edict by Tembu, when he says not to use silver anymore, what, what is this referred to? Well, in the central area of Japan, like, um, you know, the Kansai or the Kinki area, we ha there's over a hundred of these uh, mumon ginsen or silver coins found, and it's believed that that this um, edict in 683, saying no longer using silver coins, refers to these mumon ginsen. Now, shortly after this edict by Temmu, he he actually revokes that and says that um, do not stop using um, the silver coins. So we see silver, the mumon ginsen in some sort of um, circulation. Then the fuhonsen. And then he says, well, actually, don't, don't stop using silver. So we've returned to the silver, right? Why, why was the period of Fuhonsen so short? Why did we return to silver? And in order to understand this, let's look at the, the, the milieu of the time. At this time, the, at the time, the capital was at Fujiwara. After Fujiwara, it will be moved um, to Nara or Heijo, right? Mm. Right. right. So, the Mumon Ginsen, which the production of which was stopped in 683, according to um, Japanese historians, is believed to have been commodity money, based on the value of the silver. Fuhonsen, which is only in circulation for a very short period of time, was fiat money. Mm. So, it's very possible that the residents of Fujiwara did not trust this new fiat money. Um, Can you explain what you mean by fiat money? The different, for example, face value money. Okay. So, so, for example, like paper is worth more than its actual intrinsic worth. Right. Okay. Compared to like bullion or compared to like a silver or gold coin, mm -hmm. that is, at least during this time, the commodity money, it's worth the value of its 
of what it's... The, the dictionary definition of fiat currency would be basically currency that has no intrinsic value except what it's given by the government. Exactly. Okay. Alright. So the, the Mumon Ginsen was commodity money, while the, the, the next uh, coinage that appears, the Fuhonsen, is believed to be fiat money. And it's very possible that there was distrust of this fiat money which did not have intrinsic value. Now, we're, we're going to put that aside for one second, and we're going to look at um, the Wado Kaichin. Now, in 708, the Wado Kaichin is first minted, and this is listed in the, in the um, Shoku Nihongi as um, in the second year of Wado. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was minted in the, in the second year of Wado. And um, the Shoku Nihongi mentions to use this in place of the previous silver coins. It's believed that the silver coins were the the Mumon Ginsen, which Tenmu outlawed in 683, replaced with the Fuhonsen, then brought back. So after the Mumon Ginsen were brought back, they were then replaced by the Wado Kaichin. Now, let's look at the relationship between the Mumon Ginsen and the Wado Kaichin. The Wado Kaichin come in two forms. In, in 708, we find the silver Wado Kaichin. Shortly after that, they are then the bronze Wado Kaichin are then put into circulation. So first we have silver. So silver Wado Kaichin replacing the silver uh, Mumon Ginsen, the silver undecorated coins. Now, so basically they're just sticking with commodity currency because that seems to be what was working for them. Is right, it? fiat money did not have a good stint. However, this is a, a little discussed point that I think um, is nevertheless a very salient point, is that the the, the new Wado Kaichin, the silver Wado Kaichin, weighed less than the previous silver Mumon Ginsen. Did it have the same face value? It had the same face value. Hmm. So, what does this mean? It means they brought in a lighter currency, Japanese government, or, you know, it's a poor word, but... Whoever was in charge, the, the ruling powers that be. Right. Um, at the, 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 the closing years of the... Um, Fujiwara Kyo... Yeah. Exactly. At 708, basically. Before the move to... Uh, Heijo. Heijo, thank you. I'm helping. Um, so they replaced the heavier previous coinage with a new lighter coinage that had the same face value. This, in effect, was um, a money-making scheme by the government. So the government replaces the heavier uh, previous silver coinage with a lighter silver coinage without changing the face value. Um, the, the new coinage, the silver Wado Kaichin, was 6.5 grams, which is half to a third of what the previous Mumon Ginsen weighed. Right. So by, the government is thus putting less into, using less silver, but nevertheless keeping the face value the same, thus on their end um, being, a, in, in effect, a money-making scheme where they're able to then take uh, silver or, or basically quote-unquote money and divert it to other purposes. Mm. And I'll discuss what those purposes may have been in a, in a, in a second. At, the, at this time period there are edicts um, forbidding the private illegal minting of coins or the hoarding of coins. Uh, so you not only have hoarding but you have private minting, um, illegal private minting. And so and an edict shortly after says this shall not be, right? So this, this money-making scheme by the government appears to have been um, the, the, the capital residents apparently caught wind of this. I'm a little bit confused as to why anyone would want to hoard 
this kind of money or, or, or melt it down or anything? Because if you... Well, if you know that it's not worth... The government is, is putting up the same face value, but they're investing less silver, uh, silver in it. Right. So they're able at the start to begin saving money. Yeah, I understand what the government's trying to do. Okay, so that's why... Um, that's the perspective that we need to look at that from. As far as the people level, well, that's right. Yeah, you always want the face value of the coins to be worth less than what's actually put into it. Otherwise, people will just melt it down for the components. Exactly. There was a point in U.S. history where, where I think it was nickels had had more silver. There was the value of the silver and the nickel was more worth more than the face value of the nickels. People right, were it was not hoarding them and melting them down. Right. So you want to do the opposite. So you want to. You want to do what they did. Basically. You want to do what they did. You want yeah. to have a higher face value so that people won't melt it down. The Wado Kaichin, the silver Wado Kaichin, only lasted for three years. And I think it's interesting that they're making. You know, this is one of the first times that they're making coins. Maybe maybe it's not the actual first time, but mm -hmm. the the rain era Wado is in fact named after the fact that they discovered a huge source of bronze in Mutsu in in Mutsu province, and so they therefore named the era Japanese bronze or. or you know, although there is, do, there is do, do from wa, wado. Although there is disagreement over whether that's whether the, the wado is actually Japanese bronze. That's that's the main. That's the story I've heard. That's I mean that's that's the the, the story that's been put out. Yeah. But looking at uh, rain eras and Chinese precedents, um, it's suggested that this was simply um, this wado was simply um, an auspicious uh, an auspicious term. And had nothing to do with bronze, so I mean there are two possibilities mm. here. Nevertheless, um, after three years of the silver, we have a bronze wado kaichin. Mm. Um, so we've returned to fiat money, and this this bronze coin, or you know, copper. Oh, interesting. What? what? Sorry, um, I recently read an article by Kobata Atsushi, who's mm -hmm. um, a pretty major uh, economic historian talking about coinage from the Kamakura period to the Edo period. And he says explicitly right here that, um, I mean, we're going a little bit later, but he says that by the end of the 10th century, the circulation of coinage, um, including the Wado coins, right, uh, ceased completely because the quality of the coinage, whose circulation, uh, is the, quality of, the quality of the coinage had been debased. Mm. And the, the weight being reduced, the people lost confidence in it. Okay. So there so, we are sort of backing up the same story. Right. And, that, and this article is what? Coinage from the Kamakura period through the Edo period. By who? By Kobata Atsushi. Okay. Acta Asiatica, 1971. For those of you interested? Yes. Uh, I, I will link it up. Awesome. Um, however, the, after three years, the, uh, the silver Wado Kaichin was replaced by copper Wado Kaichin, and that marks a return to fiat money. Which we they haven't had good, uh, you know, a good track record with with um, you know lost confidence in the money by the citizens. Nevertheless, three months only three months after the the repeal of the um, the minting of the silver wadokaichin, the the copper comes into into play. So silver minting is stopped. Three months later, we return to the copper wadokaichin. Now, temporally, where does this place us? This places us 
A half year after the imperial edict to move the capital to Heizhou or Nara. So, according, uh, there's a Japanese historian who suggests that the purpose of uh, minting the bronze or the copper wadokaichin was to um, make up for the, or to assist in procuring the massive amount of money that would be required in moving the capital. Moving a capital is not, is not an easy story. It's not, <laughs> I mean, it's moving yeah, the capital. Just pick up and go? It's only three words. Yeah. But nevertheless, you're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about moving a, a humongous center. Right. You have to rebuild the palace, and, and it's a whole huge thing. Exactly. So, um, it's, it's interesting that, three, that this, um, during this time period you have a return to fiat money at this, basically around the same time that the imperial edict is, is issued to move the capital to Heijo. So perhaps this temporal proximity suggests um, a, a move by the government to perhaps uh, assist in procuring the funds to, to move the capital. It's part of their stimulus plan. Very, yeah, very well, you know. In addition, um, you know, at this time, circulation was, was weak. It was not an, a period of, of vibrant circulation. And so that the, in order to stimulate the lagging distribution of circulation of coinage, um, in, seven, in 711, or the fourth year of Wado, the government issued the Chikusen Joire, which was an imperial edict um, that rewarded um, those who saved large amounts of this um, you know, metallic money, metallic currency, with court rank. Um, in addition to that, as um, they, they also um, ordered the use of this, of this coinage in transactions of, of land, and uh, all tax payments were to be made with coinage. In addition, civil servants were paid in this in this uh, in this coinage as well. So they were they were integrating coins which you know people were not perhaps, uh, used to or, or perhaps did not trust. They were integrating the coins into the bureaucratic system of the time. So this is um, the fringe of my you know my research focuses on uh, you know the Yayoi and Kofun. So I've, I've kind of stepped a little bit beyond my bounds, beyond my reach. <laughs> uh, how impudent. But um, nevertheless, I, I, I found the political reasons for um, minting coins or for you know, their debasement or um, returning to fiat money perhaps to, to save a little money up front by the government. Uh, I found these reasons fascinating, especially the temporal proximity or the, the closeness to, from the return, you know, with the return to fiat money with the, mo the moving of the capital. Um, I think that's an option that should be, you know, carefully considered. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've looked at, um, the focus mainly of today was to look at pre-Wado Kaichin money and whether that money is domestically printed, uh, do I'm sorry, domestically minted, um, or whether it was simply brought in uh, as trade and, you know, as we discussed in the first half of the podcast, uh, either way, the presence of coinage in Japan before Wado Kaichin was the, was the focus of today, and I, I hope you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Just as a sort of like kind of overview that I mean after um, after coins kind of fell out of currency around this time, right? And from from what I was reading from Kabata's article, it seemed to take it wasn't sort of immediately right then, but it was sort of by by the tenth century, mm -hmm. so kind of mid on already. By the tenth century, coins pretty much Japanese coins pretty much <coughs> fell out of use, mm -hmm. and as I understand it, basically I mean over the course of the Kamakura period, the Ashikaga period. 
Chinese coins at various points became you know, much, much more in use, and they definitely played a ma very major role. But in terms of the minting of Japanese coins, that didn't really come back for about five centuries. Wow. Um, and there may be examples in between that I don't know about, but Kobata sort of emphasizes, well, I mean, yeah, he basically emphasizes the reemergence of Japanese coins in the 15th century um, when, due to sort of price fluctuations and the differences in buying power and whatever, right. suddenly Japanese merchants find it much more profitable to, rather than taking Chinese coins back with them to Japan, to instead spend them while they're still in Japan and bring silk or other materials back from China. So it's a form of arbitrage. Right. right. And then once we get into the 16th century, we have certain domains, um, certain, I shouldn't say domains yet, but 16th century, certain, certain places um, getting much more involved in mining and, and, and minting coins. And some of the major daimyo start minting their own coins. Shingen minted coins, Nobunaga, Hideyoshi right. minted coins. Right, and, and you also have, um, especially during this time, certain uh, daimyo domains, some of the more, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but more advanced, um, switching from a rice-based taxation system to a coin-based taxation system. Right, namely the Hojo, right? Namely the Hojo, um, Nobunaga in certain areas of his domains did it as well, uh, even as far out as the, uh, the Ouchi, I believe. Um, but the, the reason behind this is because is precisely because it, coins are more transportable, coins are, um, you know, it essentially placed the burden of conversion uh, on the taxpayer, as right. opposed to uh, the, the cultivator and taxpayer, um, as opposed to the daimyo himself, which was important because he needed the cash to be able to spend on uh, military requisitions. Right, right. So it was easier, you know. Um, to and do that, that. Yeah, Hideyoshi that was, goes away from this, obviously. Yeah. And that was going back as early as the Kamakura and Muramachi period. It's that certain at certain times in certain places, people people were paying in coin or in some other form of bullion or something instead of it in rice. But um, just one more thing that I thought was really interesting as I was reading through this is that a lot of the coins that were minted by these major Sengoku daimyo were not in any way meant for general circulation. Mm. They were not producing huge amounts of them. They were producing, um, apparently in, in the Sengoku and into the Azushimomayama, um, if you want to call that a separate period, most of the coins that were produced were roughly ten, 10 rio in value, Oban coins, not one rio Koban right. coins. So they're very large values, mm -hmm. and they were basically produced for the daimyo to um, give as gifts to his generals or to other people, um, whether you want to call it gifts or payment you know, for their service or whatever it was, but um, it's that kind of thing. Could the, could the recipient turn around and use that to buy things? I'm not sure that he could turn around and give it to a merchant, you know, like, here's 10 real, but you can divide it up. That's all you're buying, I suppose. Yeah. But you can divide it up different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could break up the coin itself. Here's an actual amount of gold that's mm -hmm. worth this much, because it wasn't a face value thing. Right. Um, also, it's commodity currency. Commodity currency. Okay. So hmm. it had an intrinsic value for how much gold it was, so you could turn around and do things with it um, in that respect. But yeah, I mean, getting into Edo period of money would be really a whole topic unto itself, so I think we'll have to, probably better to stop there, but um, I, I, don't know. I thought that was really interesting.
the way that, that money was used in that way. And I don't didn't copy down the numbers here, but there the article uh, Kobata's article has some really interesting numbers about exactly how much certain generals were paid at certain times, hmm. um, and it was some pretty massive amounts. So. The year that Hideyoshi left his camp at Odawara, whatever that year is, he had rice sent to Ejiri and Shimizu in Suruga province and had supplies purchased with 10,000 mai of gold. Um, 10,000 mai of gold is roughly equivalent to 500,000 koku. Wow. Um, and that was what he spent as part of his provision, uh, provisioning of his own troops and such um, at that time. So, oh, here we go. Uh, when Nobunaga destroyed the, the Takeda family, for example, he gave Nishio Kosayamon uh, 50 mai of gold, uh, not just as a gift, but in order to purchase things for his army. Um, and uh, at the time of his death, Ken, uh, the time of his, get, of his death, Kenshin was said to have accumulated 2,500 mai of gold, uh, which he stored in his uh, castle at uh, Kasugayama. Oh, so one mai is 10 ryo. So to say that he had 2,500 mai, um, 25,000 ryo of gold just hanging out in his castle at Kasugayama. So hmm. anyway, I... Well, that's an aspect of the Sengoku Daimyo and you know, generals that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, we don't normally talk about... I mean, I, I personally have not heard about it. I don't know if Nate has come across that more often, but I personally had never really come across how much money each one was paid or, you know... Um, so anyway, so that was really interesting. You no, know, I mean it's something that that would be useful to know for other research, but as far as like you know, individual compensations and, and stuff, I'm not a hundred percent. You're yeah, you're right. yeah. I mean yeah. it's not it's not your focus. But yeah, you're an institutional historian. <laughs> anyway, at some point I would love to get a cringing. <laughs> at some point I would I would love to get a, a better grip on currency kind of in general or especially in the Edo period, but it's a lot of numbers and it's very complicated and each Rio is worth four mome and four bu. So how much is a mome and how much is a bu and yeah. And but you know but that's only for gold because silver a silver Rio was worth four mome and three bu. So at some point it would be great to get a better handle on this stuff. What's a koban and what's an oban and what's a um, you know Ichibu Sen and uh, you know, but for another day. A koban is where Nate would occasionally sleep off a heavy night of drinking. <laughs> what are what are the things that do not need to go in the podcast? Five hundred, Alex. <laughs> but having just read this entire article about um, coinage from Kamakura to Edo, it was particularly interesting to hear about pre you know earlier history. So, yes. Yeah. Is that a wrap? It's a wrap. So you're going. All right. So that's it for our delving into the history of coinage in ancient Japan. And then we also touched on more recent uses in medieval and Sengoku period Japan. And then at some point, we'll probably touch on Edo period. At some point. Yeah. And so that pretty much covers it. So that's a wrap for today. If you have any comments, please send them to us at Samurai Archives or SamuraiPodcast at gmail.com. Also, uh, please feel free to support the podcast with the links that will be provided. Uh, basically, the Samurai Archives bookstore and the Cafe Press t-shirt shop. Uh, if you would like to help us out, then please feel free to purchase your things through there and everybody wins. 
So that's Everybody it. wins. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> you get a gold star, and you get a gold star. And don't gold forget star. The, the green participation ribbon. But uh, anyway, that's it for today. So this is Chris for Travis, Nate, and Joseph saying bye bye. Mahalo. Bye. You're up. Bye.